All right, hello and welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz just did an emergency extraction there, so the cat didn't use the Corsi Rosenthal box as a scratching post, but uh, everything's A-OK. <laughs> what the hell's going on down on the bunker? What the, <laughs> there's some bunker commotion there, but... <laughs> Thankfully, you got it all cleared up. Both <laughs> cats, it's uh, it's all good. We're good to go. <laughs> Bunker commotion sounds like a Sex Pistols album from 1978. Oh, that's, I'm going to file that. Yeah. <laughs> For the next one. This is on the song for my new album, Bunker Commotion, mate. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's got to happen now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Open Source is the CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Dr. Catherine Varner, who is an academic emergency physician and the deputy editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And she is going to talk to us about her article, Emergency Departments Are in Crisis Now and for the Foreseeable Future. So we're going to get her to expand on some of those concerns later on in the show, which will be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we've got a few news items we're going to talk about from the last week, including the end of local news. Bell Media is looking to loosen their requirements for local news. And the owner of the Star Newspapers is looking to merge with Post Media. So, yeah, is this the end? It may really be the end. But first, uh, what did you do last weekend? Did you lead your private army 200 kilometers across the countryside to confront your boss and benefactor? Well, that's what... uh, I want to get this name right. Uh, Eugeny Prigogin? Yes, Eugeny Prigogin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can you believe I practiced that several times before the show? (laughs) Uh, Yegeni Prigozhin, who's the leader of the Wagner Group, which uh, has a bloody and uh, meticulous history across much of the known world um, that we won't get into. But let's just say they've been guilty of some damn dirty things in Africa, Syria, uh, and Ukraine as well. They've been on the front lines of the Ukraine uh or the war in the ukraine and Prigozhin decided that uh, enough was enough there is some matter of disagreement about what precipitated his march on moscow whether it was uh this incident where some of his men were caught in friendly fire in an air attack uh or whether or not he was upset that the wagner mercenary group was being folded into Uh, the regular Russian forces, and that his dreaded nemesis, the Minister of Defense, Sergei uh, Shoju, was going to take over his troops. Either way, uh, it was over in about 24 hours. Uh, Prigozhin is now uh, doing a permanent residency in Belarus, um, where he is likely waiting for Putin's revenge. Vladimir Putin, meanwhile, uh, took a victory lap for not being deposed, in a coup d'etat and uh all of this seems to i mean there are a couple of interesting questions like around what happens next but i think there's also a couple of inter- interesting questions around what the heck happened and, the, <laughs> and that you know this thing crept up so quickly and then wrapped up just as quickly and kind of even more mysteriously 
Well, that's exactly it. Whatever they're calling it now, coup, mutiny, rebellion. Mm. I've heard versions of all three. I, I don't think, and as was happening too, I'm like, I don't think any of this should be taken at face value. No. Because with the speed that it evolved, of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the West, for lack of a better catch mm-hmm. catchphrase or catchment term, mm-hmm. uh, we're like, oh, you know, this is this will be good, this will be great for Ukraine, and all that. but it's like it's like take a step back, like wait a second, this this guy just seemingly walks in uh, Rostov on Don, which is a which is a city that's kind of on the border of Ukraine, and then heads up does his march on Moscow, and I'm like, is is it is this theater? Mm-hmm. Is this a front for something? I'm, I'm not skeptical because there's just so much inf- misinformation that goes with these things. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, Putin had his very pissed off uh, speech there, making it clear <laughs> that uh, this, you know, he wasn't going to take any of it. And you're right, Prigozhin's going to have to watch the windows and bottles <laughs> of water and whatever else, even though because weirdly, um, with uh, Belarus hatching the deal, allegedly. Allegedly, exactly. It, it that in itself is a layer of strange as well, because n- nobody, um, you know, um, <gasps> Belarus is kind of seen as Russia's puppet in this. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's very few uh, places that uh, Prigozhin could go in the world, because I think if he flew in into international airspace somewhere else and was captured, like he is wanted. This is not a good guy, and that that's the the misconception. There was those scenes of. When they were leaving after this, not even the long march, probably one of the shortest marches in history, probably mm. turns around and, and bails, and the, everybody's cheering him, and oh, this is you know, it was re- it was surreal almost because mm-hmm. it's hard to tell exactly what was going on. It's probably going to be unpacked for a, a while now. This is what because is is Wagner gone from Russia? Are they actually? going to be folded into the armed forces putin's admitted to paying them for after years of saying oh no 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 they're just you know they're independent contractors or whatever it's they're nothing to do with us they're nothing to do with the russian government and now it's yeah. like oh yeah we were paying them but it's, it was from this from this date to now mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just okay draw a line under it now um and he seems to be sticking with uh Shoigu, as as you mentioned there, mm-hmm. and Guramazov, it's it's going to be interesting to see which of the because heads some heads are going to roll supposedly, the, and it's yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. Some of the chiefs, some of the generals, some within the military knew that this was coming. Mm-hmm. It has been said in on reliable sources. Uh, now again, that's hard to determine that until we find out whose head does indeed roll because it's not he doesn't the enemies real or perceived or are disposed of generally yeah some like alexei navalny somehow manages to somehow still survives in jail he you know survived a poisoning he's like a direct opposition person but these you know the generals and anybody in the military is supposed to be on putin's side so if he if he smells rats they're done well, that's one of the most interesting things in all this like navalny's wasting away in a gulag and you know, he was running within the system against Putin. Um, I mean, Putin has the has the elections, the, the proverbial deck stacked in his favor. But he will, you know, try to poison Navalny while he's abroad and force the plane down so that he can take him off the plane and put him in lockup. And and then, uh, you know, Prigozhin just gets to walk away. That doesn't sound like Putin. 
Um, (laughs) The the, the trick is, I think, some of those internal politics you're talking about, like who who was kind of hoping Prigozhin would succeed or even feeling that showing that Putin isn't because I, I did hear some commentary about this today from Julia Yafi's, you know, a reporter that covers Russia a lot. She's like, well, you know, for a lot of people in Russia, it's like Putin's the devil, you know, uh, Prigozhin is, you know, as you said, he's wanted uh, literally one of the highest Google hits when you Google uh, Prigozhin's name is his FBI wanted poster <laughs> because mm-hmm. he ran the Internet Research Agency, which did all the skullduggery during the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. Um, you know, he's responsible for you know theft rape murder torture murder genocide you name it in places all over the world you know you do we really want someone uh you know in the head office at the kremlin do we you know and i think a lot of russians are feeling that too on the other hand um you see these th- those videos of Prigozhin like in the streets in Russia, like people taking selfies and getting his mm-hmm. autograph and shaking his hand, and then you see Putin, you know, cloistered in the Kremlin and making videos from undisclosed undisclosed locations, and he looks, you know, obsolete. He looks like one of those old timey Soviet leaders that he was um, yeah. originally an antidote to. So, like the optics are 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 definitely in Prigozhin's favor i think though and i i have no reason to expect this just given all the analysis i've sort of been taking in i wonder if this was sort of like a test run for a future coup like how easy would it be to you know get putin scared enough to hop on a plane to saint petersburg if an army marches down the road would anyone stop the army you know if the right person came along with the right influence at the right time what might happen and i think that's the the most interesting thing also the most dangerous thing is that we we you know the world kind of saw how vulnerable putin is and um that void seems to be left for even the worst person in russia former hot dog vendor turned genocidal maniac yuri Prigozhin. and if he can get away with it you know uh may, might someone i don't want to say better because that <laughs> That seems kind of passive, but, you know, can somebody better get away with it? I don't know. And that is part of the, the Purgosian mystery. How do you mm. rise from being, he was a petty thug, hoodlum, had spent time in jail, but Putin liked his family's hot dogs in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, and then you become Putin's chef, and then you're this, you know, running these mercenaries. Mm-hmm. No military experience. Mm-hmm. So because his experience is from prison, this is more like a mob war. This is like Godfather or Sopranos. This isn't, it it is militaristic because they're all armed, but you know, the battle itself is, is kind of of a different sort rather than he's, he's not this military genius. I'm not sure who is the the super brains, even if there are any uh, Mm. behind the Russians, Putin has his guys that he's backing but he's doing that for a reason, right? It's like, mm-hmm. because I would say mostly because he can control them. Mm-hmm. But in Prigozhin's case, it's money. As you said, like he, he was running the disinformation campaigns, the bot farms, that's all his, or the work of his people at least. And that all runs on on money. It's a cash thing, right? So the mercenaries go where the, where the money's at. Right. But P- Putin also called this whole thing 
uh, fratricide was the word he used, like brother on brother <laughs> battle, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, the same language had been used about you know, how the uh, Ukraine is like, they were brothers with the Ukraine at one point until they weren't. Mm-hmm. And their Ukraine's more like cousins, right? Mm-hmm. Zelensky's first language is Russian. He, he grew up speaking Russian. So there's lots of overlap, but it, it, it's not brotherly. Um mm. Unlike this, but this is like mob brothers duking it out, mm-hmm. and, and that's it. It wasn't clear at first what, what Putin's reaction was going to be, and you know, of course, there were the rumors that he left. It seems a lot of the oligarchs and the the Moscow money left tried to mm-hmm. leave quietly, <clears throat> go somewhere else, go to the Daisha or wherever, somewhere <laughs> that's mm-hmm. nowhere near where this is going on, <laughs> because if if Wagner made it and they were out for blood, because yeah, weirdly he's like he just wanted to, he just wants to talk to. Shoigu and the generals and I just I just want to talk to them. It's like what? So you're you you shot down how what six choppers in an airplane? Yeah. There's dead yeah. dead military we don't even know about. Mm-hmm. And there's no you know there's no I guess Putin had a little ceremony thing called them the heroes of the and that's where it seems to lean into theater. Mm-hmm. I'm cynical enough to think that you know Putin might sacrifice people just to to do this whole. Um, shifting of everything to get Prigozhin into Belarus, the mm-hmm. other other genius Lukashenko <laughs> is is he really a mastermind as well? I don't I don't think so. I don't see it. I mean, he, he's the guy that's hung around long enough because he's been since ninety one since uh, since everything fell apart in the Soviet Union. It's yeah, like, you look you look at Lukashenko. He looks like he's doing Stalin cosplay, but um, yeah. well, it's, it's Stalin. <laughs> Budget stolen, yeah. He's the dollar store stolen. Um, but yeah, like the the money part of this is interesting. Like, I wonder how much Lukashenko. Like, yeah, I'll solve your problem for you. You know, uh, what's well, my cut? And Putin, of course, um, one of the most wealthiest men in the world to to the point where nobody really knows how wealthy he is. Like, everything in Russia flows through him. He creates the oligarchs. Um, unless you're in Putin's favor, you are not an oligarch. Um, so, you know, is Lu- Lukashenko getting a piece of the action, like keeping uh, Prigozhin on, uh, you know, on standby so that he can, uh, so when Putin's, you know, good and ready to twist the knife, uh, <laughs> you know, Lu- Lukashenko's on the other end of the phone. Um, was Prigozhin bought off? Like, okay, like how much would it cost you for you to go- just go away? Like, you've done a great job with this mercenary group. There's an interesting factoid, too. Like, actually, technically, mercenary groups are illegal for the russian government to use in russia so i mean the whole thing's unconstitutional which is i mean rich because i mean putin doesn't care about the constitution but just structurally it's fascinating um you know did pushkin take a uh, Pugosian, i mean t- take a, a check to go away um and then you know where does this leave the leadership i mean i mean, I mean on, in terms of like the actual war effort it's not like russia had a lot of really great morale on the front lines of the war. Um, and now like the all-star, like they're, they're George Washington, they're Douglas MacArthur is gone. He's chilling his heels in Belarus and all, all his, well, I guess some of his main guys will likely go into exile with him, but you know, all the, the regular order troops, all the guys he sprung out of prison to go to the front line, you know, they're, they're still facing uh, a Ukraine, uh, counter insurgency which i mean hasn't shown a lot of um 
muscle yet, but uh, as I was listening to one analyst say, you know, it, it, during the offensive last year, it wasn't until September that um, their efforts started to pay off um, in terms of taking back property. So, you know, it could very well be that there's going to be a long summer ahead for Russian fighters. Uh, and by long, I mean like ca- catastrophic and bloody. And um, now their all-star general has decided to, you know, peace out, whether that's because, he, you know, he's taken, the, taken a check or he's, you know, giving up, you know, it's can't be great for morale. <laughs> no. And the integration is going to be interesting too, if it does fully happen, because as Prigozhin had said that he, what prompted this whole thing was that they were fired upon by mm. Russian troops. Mm. So there may be still some lingering bitterness there. Are you know the Wagner troops? Are they even what? Are, if they're from prison, how well trained are they? There's some animosity there for sure. Uh, and you know, if you're not getting paid what you were, because mm. assuming you know that's how mercenaries work, mm-hmm. uh, there might be some bitterness there too. So this, you know, it's obviously not over, but the crack. It's it's not just this isn't a tiny crack. This is a fissure, huge. So as as everyone who's ever seen The Rock knows, mercenaries get paid. That's the difference between a mercenary else. and a soldier. They get paid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. That's Tony Todd. Um, <laughs> moving to local news, uh, almost literally. Uh, Bell Media, first of all, laid off 1,300 people, or they, they uh, from what I understand, 30% of the 1,300 were, those positions were vacant already, so they didn't lay off um, empty chairs. But uh, 1,300 positions were eliminated, including some pretty notable people. Uh, you know, Glenn McGregor, you know, former Ottawa citizen reporter, investigative reporter Glenn McGregor, now publishing a substack like the rest of the whole ploy, like me. Um, mm-hmm. But Bell Media followed it up by sending a note to the R- uh, CRTC saying that uh, they find covering local news a bit too onerous and kind of restrictive in, I guess, making the profits that they that are just like so close that they can taste them if if we could just get the local news requirements off their back they'll start making money hand over fist but um you know this comes also at the same time we didn't plan this by the way uh complete surprise on on tuesday night when it was announced that post media and uh the company that owns toward star north star um are looking at merging too so we're gonna have like one mega newspaper oligopy um bell media which owns a lot of local news stations including one up the road ctv kitchener uh you know wanting to do uh about eight hours a week of programming instead of the the 14 that they're required to do now i did the math that ctv kitchener does about 23 hours of local news programming in a week so that would be significantly less if they chopped it down to eight. Um, but yeah, this is uh, I think this is going to be a problem. And uh, I worry that we're not going to we're not really talking about it. Yeah, the Canadian media oligarchs at work. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, we've had this <laughs> uh, arc that's gone for about two weeks, as you mentioned, the bell cuts, but and the potential post-media Torstar merger. I'm saying potential, but it'll probably happen. Mm. Sandwiched in between those was the blockage of Canadian news by Meta, aka Facebook and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually, Adam, I meant to ask, I'm not sure how that's going to affect us. Do we slide under or I, I, it, it remains to be seen as whether 
open sources will be shared around on Facebook anymore. Um, I know well, Facebook it, isn't working the, the way that it was. And people are saying, oh, I can't see stuff. I don't see your things. And that's not just the news. It's everything. So I don't know whether we're going to get sidelined in that a little bit. It remains to be seen if they go through with the the blockage at all, because they, they made the same threat to Australia last year. So, yeah. And, and that didn't said, happen. As you said, Bell was asking the CRTC to eliminate the local news requirement. A lot of this is tied to legislation that has been dropping in Ottawa related to all of this, mm -hmm. where, uh, well, at least the larger um, tech companies feel that the uh, um, government has gone after them by imposing this these kind of a sanction on them, saying, you know, you need you need to you need to carry local news and you need you need to pay. You need to pay news organizations for what you put up there. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. You know what we're going to do? We're just going to get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. And the same with um, the uh, Bell's Ask as well has, has also come from, uh, I think it was Bill C-11 in that instance, right? Mm -hmm. There's just two mm -hmm. parallel pieces of legislation going through. Uh, and Bell's like also trying to say, well, we're going to have none of it as well. And the, the endless mergers, Post Media Tour Star thing on top of this is just showing that the consolidate Bell is a product of all these consolidations over years and years. We've seen mm -hmm. lots of things folded and it didn't make sense for a while. It was hard to keep track of what is it now? CTV Bell still Globe Media? I'm not even sure the full title yet, but we've seen all of these smaller things folded in. The Roger Shaw merger, mm -hmm. which went through so mm -hmm. gradually and progressively, not even that progressively, like very mm -hmm. rapidly, the thing is collapsing, right? And the you know bell crying. Oh, we don't have money. We don't have any money. What did they get for the emergency wage subsidy? One hundred twenty-two million. At least, yeah. Uh, over the course of COVID, despite turning a profit, then they raise, you know, they raise the dividends. Payout went up to shareholders. Is that hardship? Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that supposed to be hardship money? So there's there's lots of crying going on. And if they're restructuring with, you know, empty positions like via attrition or something, but as you said, a lot of high rollers are gone, but not only that with them, the foreign bureaus are gone. Yeah. Yeah. So who are going to, you know, the only game in town now, I guess, Canadian wise for remote will be global and CBC generally. Right. Mm -hmm. And the news media too, whoever may or may not go with the star on them. I don't know if they're that the plan is to keep the star intact. They will cut people though. They may initially say, Oh no, everything will be. And then just wait a couple of years. Maybe not even. Mm. No, actually we can't do this due to undue hard, excuse me, undue hardship. We'll come up with something and then they'll, they'll chop. This is all about the chop, right? Yeah. And it comes at a time when like the regulatory conditions in Ottawa are in the favor of these big groups. Like, Bill C-18 isn't going to help me. It wasn't designed to help me, like doing Guelph Politico stuff. It was designed to help Post Media. It was designed to help Torstar. It was designed to help CTV and Bell and Global and all of those. And the, the thing that... The, the rich part to me was that the, the Bell letter... Uh, the CRTC says, like, oh, we're like getting slammed in competition from like Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and Netflix. And it's like the point of Netflix isn't to produce local news. The point of Apple TV isn't to produce local news. And by the way, what do you think CTV is going to do with 14 fewer hours of local news coverage? Dollars to donuts, those hours are going to be filled by A, reruns of Seinfeld, or B, reruns of Big Bang Theory, which is what they do when they have holes in their programming right now. Yeah, it's like a, a binge watch. I, I don't watch it, but yeah, I've, I've seen that in their scheduling. And when they when they do the announcement that it's you know 
two, three hours sometimes of a show, it's it's like you're you're really just stuffing this at this point because there is no <laughs> other content. And yeah, and part of that too is making the local news is definitely going to be hurt for sure, but they're also complaining about having to produce their own programming. Mm-hmm. So like I, I can't even name that new show they have with the lawyers now. I said, not like really, you know, <laughs> you know that show with the lawyers, that's so much attention and I paid to it. So, and I, you know, I, I love and I'm full supporter of local news as you are too, Adam. Like yeah, I, I yeah. definitely miss that aspect of it, but there is a lot of stuff that's just like, okay, you're, you're just doing this because you, you have to. Yeah. And if any, you know, by extension, if it can get shopped around somewhere and end up on something like Netflix, as we see with, with all kinds of shows, a good, you know, some of the CBC ones like Murdoch is worldwide via Netflix. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that, that's lucrative for them, but if you have to just produce a show because you have to, you get like, not to diss the littlest hobo, but you know, this has been going on for a long time, right. Where they're just kind of making a show to, to fill the space or a classic one is Google this. If you don't know what I'm talking about folks, the trouble with Tracy uh that was early CanCon stuff early crtc stuff is like you need a show and they made what's named one of the worst television shows in the history of tv so it's not as if these issues are new mm-hmm. but the the le- the level of complaining about it is uh so are you know do they just do the bare minimum uh, as they have, like you say, filling spaces and that, do they kill off local news? And we'll all be worse off for that. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, you know, the streaming services don't carry it. If the, the newspapers are being beaten, news, newspapers, if they're even paper anymore, being beaten with an inch of their lives, they don't really have beats anymore. Some do. There's, there's. I think Toronto Star is maybe the holdout. It's like the last of that type. Yeah. You're not just pulling stuff off the wire, although they do do that. But then you, you need wire reporters. And to even to fill with wire reports, you need a wire. Is that <laughs> under threat as well? Because mm-hmm. they all contribute to that, right? Yeah. Canadian press isn't a cooperative anymore. It's like they all did, all the media contribute to that. They're going to start chopping that too. How are we going to find anything out? Just bloggers and sub stackers. And... Hey. Hey, and you, we're gonna find out from you. You're gonna keep on going, right? <laughs> don't, don't, well, yeah. I hope so, man. Because I, yeah, I don't, <laughs> don't just don't 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 dunk on the substackers. No, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna come right back with our interview with Dr. Catherine Barner. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. That's from the album that's number 22 on the current CFRU chart. The band's called Church of Trees, which is my church, which is burning right now, actually. But anyway, the uh, album's called Courage, mm-hmm. self-released, and the song was Lost My Job, the Stick It to the Man remix. 
as many are feeling in media these days and in lots of other places. For sure, and if anyone's sort of feeling the heat, uh, as it were, not not the literal heat of uh, the summertime, but the heat of just being stressed on the job, it is our emergency room doctors and nurses. Uh, to that effect, uh, a doctor named uh, Catherine Varner, uh, she's an emergency uh, emergency department academic. So she's someone who helps train emergency, uh, do- emergency room doctors and things like that. And, uh, she wrote an article called emergency departments are in crisis now and for the foreseeable future. And it kind of hit a chord because she was getting at a lot of issues around the stresses that doctors are facing hallway medicine, uh, the pressures on that, uh, you know, the pressures on doctors that are forced to be given care when they have all these limited resources, limited um, human resources as well. Um, a lot of people leaving uh, emergency departments for different positions. And uh, boy, it's uh, if you ever drive past Guelph General Hospital to see the lineup of ambulances from time to time, mm. uh, you don't need to know more than that. But uh, if you are interested in knowing more than that, um, Dr. Varner is going to give us an inside look at, uh, you know, what life is like in the emergency room for people like her and her colleagues as they try to overcome the tremendous challenges and deliver care under some very tremendous, difficult circumstances. So we're, we're going to hit play on that interview with Dr. Varner starting right now. Okay, Dr. Catherine Varner, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. Hi, thanks, Adam, for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's start by talking just sort of generally um, when, when you're through, you know, the, the emergency department at your own hospital and you're talking to colleagues, obviously without, you know, naming names. But I mean, just in terms of the general feeling of, of you know, when they come to work in the day or they're getting near the end of their shift and, and you know, they're looking towards next day, next week, you know, just what's kind of the general feeling of of your colleagues when when they're working these days? the general feeling is is exhaustion you know we've been in this for a long time now you know through the course of the pandemic and then starting in about 2021 we started seeing uh, essentially we're going back to our normal volumes in emergency departments because we saw a decrease in emergency department volumes right off the bat in the pandemic i think people are afraid to come to the emergency department they um, we're also, you know, feel fearful of using possible resources that were needed uh, in, in caring for COVID patients in particular. And um, so by 2021, and certainly uh, by last summer, we saw a rebound of emergency department utilization. And but on top of that, we saw a substantial amount of overcrowding um, that we had not seen at uh, the same levels before. So what we're hearing across the country, uh, which is evidenced by open letters that have been written to media outlets from BC all the way to Nova Scotia, is that emergency department providers feel like they cannot continue to provide timely and safe care um, in waiting rooms uh, and ambulance bays and driveways of their hospital because they have nowhere to see their patients. And uh, so everybody's feeling really over exhausted and overwhelmed um, now coming uh, in a place in the pandemic where, yes, we're not seeing nearly as many COVID patients, thankfully, um, but we are seeing sort of a level of crowding that we've never seen before. 
yeah, this is kind of addressed in your article that we're kind of getting back to levels that uh, of, of VR visits that happened pre-pandemic, but you are experiencing pressures in terms of like crowding, in terms of delivery of service that weren't there pre-pandemic. So I guess what is the X factor here in terms of you're, you kind of have the same amount of business, but you just don't have the resourcing that you seem to once have? Yeah, so we've always um, faced it, crowding in Canadian emergency departments and certainly at times where we saw peaks in influenza season. But I think the difference now is that we really feel the lack of acute care hospital beds um, in emergency departments. So uh, Canada does not have enough acute care hospital beds to look after the patients that need hospitalization. And so what happens is patients who are waiting to be admitted to hospital um, have to stay in the emergency department for many hours and now, if not days, while they're waiting for that hospital bed to become available. And it means that when uh, we have that much crowding or what we call boarding in the emergency department, we can't uh, make space for new patients who are needing care in the emergency department. So that, that means that all of that care has to happen in unconventional spaces. Mm -hmm. So waiting rooms, hallway stretchers. Um, in some cases, we're hearing across the country that patients are having to be seen in ambulances, which is you know not uh, heard of before in emergency medicine. That's not how we're trained to provide care uh, in an ambulance bay. It sounds like the emergency department has become sort of a bottleneck that it's it, the, the, the trouble is that the hospital can provide that care. It's just a matter of trying to get those patients from the ambulance bay into the, into the hospital that this is where there's, it sounds like kind of a patient logjam happening. Yeah. There are internal factors, which are the, the, the hospital crowding factors. And then there are also the external factors of, you know, we're seeing more patients than ever before that don't have a primary care provider mm. um, or don't have access to a provider in, in an urgent fashion for less acute concerns. So it's uh, it's multifactorial. You know, we really um, see ourselves as, as that intersection in the healthcare system where a lot of the challenges both in the healthcare system and in, in our communities as a whole really come to a head. Uh, and, um, you know, in the, in the wintertime, we saw you know, the effects of homelessness in, in our, our major cities across Canada. And, and I would say even you know, suburban hospitals across Canada saw uh, levels of, of patients needing care because they didn't have a place to go um, mm -hmm. in the wintertime. And so it, we are always uh, sort of the sanctuary of, of care uh, for patients who, who need urgent uh, care in our healthcare system and in our communities. Another thing I noted in the article is um, there used to be a kind of like rhythm to sort of when ERs would be emergency departments. I've, I've still got my head around a 16 season TV show that ran 20 years ago. But um, in the emergency departments, uh, you had these cycles. So, you know, October's coming, you know, influenza is around the corner, you know, summertime, you know, there's going to be more you know, traffic accidents and things like that as people are out and about. I'm wondering if there's a correlation, be you know, talking about the homeless people experiencing homelessness and the things they experience when they're, you know, out in the cold or um, the increase of that population. And 
sort of other factors and also this sort of lack of predictability when it comes to these surge times it's just that there are numerous factors that have led to sort of a i guess washed away those kind of predictable factors when when you're in the emergency department you know, it used to be on December 26, we knew that that was going to be our, one of our busiest days of the year. It often coincides with the peak of influenza season. Mm. Um, and, and it's a time when people have a difficult time accessing, health, accessing healthcare otherwise. So we knew that December 26th or early January was going to be log jammed in our departments. That was expected. We anticipated our staffing needs for that. Uh, and uh, we also saw peaks in summertime utilization as well. And people are doing things that they don't normally do. They get injured. Uh, again, we don't have as much access in the summer months to other healthcare providers. And uh, the challenge though now is that we're always working at 100% capacity. Uh, and so adding on even small deviations and how our communities and people within our communities utilize emergency departments makes a big difference. And so, we, you know, we see, we saw that in the cold months in our, our downtown uh, hospitals with the um, population of people who found themselves homeless. Um, we also see that now with the air quality uh, that is poor, you know, today in Toronto, our air, mm-hmm. air quality is poor. And it's not going to cause a lot of people to come to emergency departments, but it will cause a small proportion of people to need, you know, more care for their asthma. Uh, and so any of those small inflections now have actually a huge impact on our waiting rooms um, because we're already in a, a, a bed crunch situation. And so um, it, uh, we feel those fluctuations more than we ever have before because it's, it's adding on to an already overcrowded situation. And um, it, it's uh, pretty stressful. And, you know, the things like the, the air quality, the smoke from wildfires, that is a, a new challenge. So it yeah. speaks to that, you know, there are sort of unanticipated things, you know, you can base planning around previous events and things that happen with regularity, like the post Christmas <laughs> influenza rush, but you know, there, there are things coming down the pike that we probably don't know how to deal with. Yes. And, you know, emergency providers have always, we always considered ourselves, you know, being very malleable to respond to the needs of our communities. And, and I think that's what's so hard for providers is feeling like you can't provide the care that our patients deserve Mm. and that our patients expect. And, you know, I think that's been one of the most challenging things now more than a decade into my practice is hearing the disappointment Mm-hmm. that our patients express when they're on hour 20 in a hallway stretcher in pain um, and experiencing, you know, suffering that they, they, they expected better uh, of the right. healthcare system for them. And, and, you know, they, they first express understandably a frustration towards us and I get it. I, I get where they're at. Um, and then I find once they realize and looking around in the environment that we're doing the best we can, mm-hmm. um, they express profound disappointment. And I, uh, you know, I really grieve that uh, for them because I, we are doing the best we can to try to make their situation better and try to make space and to provide the best care that we can in really uh, difficult circumstances. A bit of a bit of a shock because I think a lot of us don't know what goes on in a hospital until we're actually in one and very few of us knock wood, go to a hospital on a regular basis unless we work there. Um, 
I wanted to approach this a couple different ways. Um, first, I wanted to ask about human resources, like just people in the ER. If having, if if staffing is, I mean, obviously staffing is one of the drivers, but if we were to say like to give emergency departments a bunch of doctors and nurses, whether that changes the game. And then the second part is we hear all the time from the Ontario government, they're adding beds, but what does sort of adding beds mean um, without the the other piece of it of of having the personnel to service those beds, I, I don't I don't think any of us have seen those beds materialize in a um, way that is impacting our day to day workflow. Mm. Um, and then what I would say to staffing, you know, there's been a broad net that's been cast to try to increase the number of healthcare providers in the system, and I and I acknowledge that. You know, the, the challenge is, is that the hope is that some of them will end up in emergency care and providing emergency care. And, you know, there are a few things that that are limitations to that. First of all, it's a very difficult and untenable environment to work right now. Mm. So if you had an option to work elsewhere, you'd take it. And, and we're losing our most experienced providers and droves. Um, and second, you know, to train some someone, a nurse, to work in a triage position where they're quickly identifying who are the sickest patients in our department that need the care quickest, most, you know, um, the fastest, uh, is a a skill that takes time and experience. And and so a brand new graduate cannot fill that role realistically. Mm -hmm. It takes time and training to put uh, personnel into our you know, most ex- are, are roles that require the most experience. So resuscitation, triage, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, it's this, all of these measures are going to have some impact, but they are going to take time. And I think that um, we do, and, I, and I'm not in, in the position to create these solutions, but we do need to look at fo- focused solutions at supporting and retaining our most experienced personnel in the emergency department, because if we lose that 20 year nurse or that 20 year physician, we are losing them at the prime of their career. Right. And that's the person that I want resuscitating my loved one. And right. to lose that person is a loss for the whole system. And as far as I can tell, we've done very little to retain those providers um, and to make their work life more tenable. When you and your colleagues are sort of sitting around talking about, you know, what, I guess, kind of why you get up in the morning or or at night if you're doing the night shift, you know, to, to do this work and, and what kind of support you would need. I mean, if, you know, Doug Ford were to join this call right now, I mean, what would you tell him that would, you know, that would help you and your colleagues and, and make your jobs easier or, or at least give you some relief? You know, what does relief look like? Yeah, I think the practice of boarding, um, which is keeping admitted patients for days in emergency departments, should be seen as completely unacceptable. Um, Because we know that the longer patients board in, in emergency departments, the worse their outcomes are. And there's published literature that supports that. Um, and that is what really... in this moment is creating the crisis in emergency departments. 
And so if I were to speak to, you know, all levels of health system leadership, I would have them look at the true pressure points on the system that affect boarding and, cra- mm. and which is what causes crowding in our departments, you know, uh, and that there's not an easy fix. And I acknowledge that. And it's not one government. You know, this has been right. something that the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians has been writing about for 20 years and anticipating for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's, it's multiple governments m- over decades that have not paid attention. And now, as we see uh, a population who is aging, um, that will require more emergency services as we go forward, we need to be thinking more proactively, as opposed to being in a position of being reactive which almost always creates band-aid solutions right. that have sometimes unintended effects mm-hmm. that at times can ta- actually take personnel away from the front line of the emergency department. When you were talking about boarding, it, it almost sounds like there's a psychological component to this, that it's you see that, it, you know, the, the so-called hallway medicine, you see people being left in in waiting rooms or other sort of like ad hoc areas just waiting to be serviced and it kind of has this it it has this sort of mental effect on you as a a care provider as other patients sort of seeing other people in the hallway as you were talking about um i don't know if i have a question to this but you know just the appearance of it has an effect of sort of i guess helplessness or hopelessness um as as you're just trying to deliver the care I think that observation is astute and correct. Um, you know, to me and other providers in the field, it, it's inconceivable that it it's okay right. in the emergency department, and it's not okay anywhere else in our healthcare system. Um, and at a time, you know, patients when they come into the emergency department, often they're having the worst day of their life. Right. And so, to park them in a in a hallway or to say to them. You know, the only spot I have for you right now is this waiting room chair right? next to, you know, quite a number of other very sick people also needing care. It's, it's really hard for, for them to understand because it's not, it's not explicable really. Mm-hmm. Um, in a resourced country that we are, I find it inexplicable. Yeah. And, and I, I think too, the onus is, kind of fallen on the emergency departments to sort of catch you know every all the other parts of the system and it, I was talking to the former executive director of our community health center here in Guelph and she was talking about how hospitals should be essentially big and empty because we should be able to catch most people before they have to get to an emergency department and so I guess how much of this and maybe it's like a obviously it's a multi-pronged thing you know we have to help emergency departments now but we also have to buttress the rest of the medical uh i guess diaspora right you know we have to have those more of those family physicians we have to have more of those community health centers and frontline nurses at at those places as well oh absolutely you know i'm a trained family physician i i believe that if we have uh, high quality primary care, which means access to 
comprehensive primary care that is multidisciplinary, um, then the long-term outcomes of our society are going to improve. I, I am a true believer in that. And um, investments in primary care need to happen now for the future. Uh, and are the team-based models of care, I think, realistically in our system are going to be what's feasible because we have not replaced our family physicians mm -hmm. at the rate that they are and will be retiring mm -hmm. um, to be able to support the needs of our aging population, of our growing population and their health needs. And so I think um, expanding the number of providers who can serve patients in a high quality manner, not just a one-off, oh, you know, I'm going to treat your pink eye type situation. People that actually anticipate the needs of patients and provide high quality preventive care. Mm -hmm. You're in Toronto, so I'm not going to ask you to be an expert, obviously, on rural ERs. But I mean, there is that pressure, too. And we're seeing, you know, news reports about whether it's ERs closing for the night or closing for the weekend or in some select cases closing forever. Um, there, there is going to be a blowback on urban hospitals right because if there are fewer hospitals in rural areas the next hospital over whether that's another rural hospital or another urban hospital the, the you know that situation isn't helping i guess we're creating future problems just by not addressing the, the issues that those even smaller e emergency departments well so certainly there's going to be a push to where those patients are going to need to seek care. It's not that they don't need to seek care in rural right. areas. That just means that they'll have to drive further uh, and, and potentially put them at risk. Uh, mm. And we've unfortunately seen that in news stories. Um, but what I think our listeners should, should hear is that it's what doesn't hit the news is that large sections of large volume emergency departments close now. Mm on a regular basis and it doesn't hit the news right. because we don't have to ask patients to detour to a different emergency department. Right. But when sections of large volume emergency departments close at night in particular, it means that all of those patients now are also in the waiting room. Right. Um, we saw un in an unprecedented manner, uh, medium sized hospitals, emergency departments closed last summer. We've never seen that before, mm -hmm. uh, in, in addition to the small rural sites. And that really um, disturbs our profession because we know that minutes matter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, particularly to those hospitals that are serving huge geographic regions in Ontario, um, that creates quite a bit of distress amongst emergency personnel, physicians, EMS personnel you know, the, the, the whole range of providers. Mm -hmm. And to revisit the psychological aspect of this, someone might be listening to this and think to themselves like, Oh, you know, goodness, it, it's, you know, the ERs under so much pressure. Like I could be bleeding from somewhere and not want to go to the ER, either, whether it's because like, I think I can walk it off so to speak, or I don't want to, I don't think it's serious enough to go and, and, you know, inflict myself on these poor doctors and nurses <laughs> but um i guess for for people listening and you know we're going into a long weekend which is another one of these busy times for traditionally for emergency departments i guess what do you want to tell prospective patients about um 
what they can expect in the emergency if they have to go to the emergency room and you know how you and and your colleagues are sort of fighting these systemic challenges to give them the best care that they deserve well you know i emergency providers are experts at triage you know we spend our careers learning how to identify quickly the sickest patients that need our care immediately and also to determine who can safely wait. And, um, you know, we I would never expect the uh, lay population to, to know how to triage. This is something that takes years to develop and to self-triage. So if somebody thinks that they need care in an emergency department, then they need to seek care in an emergency department. And, and, and let us help triage the... you know, urgency of this concern. Mm -hmm. And so, and, you know, in doing so for those people that need emergency resuscitation, Mm -hmm. I can tell you the Canadian emergency providers will do their best to provide safe and timely care to those patients wherever they can find the space. And that often means shuffling patients while we get a space ready and getting you know patients into the space that they need to be cared for and getting their care going uh, such that we can uh, attend to their needs. And that unfortunately does mean those who have less urgent needs and less acute needs do wait. Mm-hmm. And so what I would stress to people seeking care is, is just to please be patient. We're doing the best we can with the resources that we have. And, um, you know, I, 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 you would not be in this field now <laughs> or have stayed in this field now if you did not care deeply for the, ca- the patients who are seeking emergency care. Uh, you would have found greener pastures, you know, <laughs> <laughs> some time ago, uh, because this is a, it is a tough job uh, to work in right now. And those of us who have stayed care deeply for the outcomes of our patients, and we, and we want to see uh, the best for them. Well, I think our, our listeners can hear that you do care deeply, and um, uh, uh, that's one of the many reasons why I appreciate your time today. So, Dr. Catherine Varner, thank you so much, and and uh, keep fighting the good fight for us. Thanks, Adam. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Okay, and once again, that was Dr. Catherine Varner. Uh, I, it's a long weekend coming up, so uh, be safe out there. Do our do our emergency room uh, personnel a favor and uh, stay safe. Don't don't give them a reason to have to treat you. But yeah, as Doctor Varner said, saw rest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As Doctor Varner said, though, uh, emergency room, uh, the doctors and nurses there are there to serve you. So um, if you have to go, go. But you know, do them a solid and try not to have to go to the emergency room. <laughs> so not. No. That's that's our that's our knowing is half the battle moment for this show. <laughs> if if I mean I'm, sh- I'm sure a lot of our audiences are are old enough to remember that, but I digress. One to grow on, yeah. It is one to grow on. That's right. And the more you know, and all those <laughs> all those things. <laughs> all right, that's it for this edition of the show. We hope you liked it. You can stay connected to us at our website at opensourcesguelph.com. 
You can find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you would like to listen to our show again, you can download it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. If you're joining us at our regular time on Thursdays, please stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground. And that is one of the many great programs that you will hear here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. As for us, we shall return next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources. Happy Canada Day to those who celebrate, and we will see you next Thursday. Thursday.